First Peter chapter 1 in the Word of God. Last week, we saw from verses 8 and 9 more of the, the faith of God's people, the reason to be excited in our salvation. And here in verse 10, Peter begins, as to this salvation. Now, what salvation? Well, it's everything that he's been describing in verses 3 through 12, this preface to the main body of his letter. And this preface has everything to do with expounding the awesome nature of our salvation in Jesus Christ. Despite the fact that Peter's readers, like us, have never seen Jesus personally, yet they have an advantage over all those saints before Christ's coming. We're going to see that our advantage is that God's way of salvation has been revealed. His way of salvation has been revealed to us finally and fully in Jesus Christ. And we'll see that this salvation that has been revealed is certainly worth your excitement. So let's stand for the reading of God's word. And our text is 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things into which angels long to look. That's the reading of God's inerrant, infallible word. You may be seated, and let's seek our Lord's help in prayer. Our great and merciful Father, we approach you because we need you to illumine to us the significance of the text before us. Lord, we thank you, first of all, that you have revealed in Time, space, history, finally, how we as sinful humanity can be reconciled to you. And you have shown us that that is through the righteousness and the suffering of your son, Jesus. We thank you for everyone here who has placed their faith in Christ, who has become your children by faith. I pray for all of your children. Lord, would you excite us? Would you fill us with wonder? Would you restore to us the joy of our salvation that is in Jesus Christ? And we pray that if there be any listening, any that does not know the Savior in a personal, genuine way, oh God, we pray that your Holy Spirit would bring them to know that joy of salvation in Christ alone. Father, we ask this In the name of Jesus, who is worthy, our Savior. Amen. It's amazing how much money some people are willing to pay for a piece of art. This painting here by Paul Cezanne last year sold for $137.8 million. That's a lot. Now, some of us couldn't imagine paying a million dollars for a painting because our house isn't worth that much, let alone $137.8 million. But apparently, people will give anything for what they consider to be a masterpiece. And amazingly, in 2019, a small painting 
assigned to the earliest Renaissance painter, Cimabue, was discovered in France. It was discovered in the kitchen of an elderly woman, apparently didn't know the value of it, and this auctioneer spotted the historic piece of art while inspecting this woman's home. Uh, She lived in a small town near Paris, and so the auctioneer suggested that she have this work of art valued. Well, the panel painting here is not even the size of a standard piece of paper. It's about 10 by 8 inches. And who could have guessed its incredible worth? But this painting entitled Christ Mocked would sell for 24 million euros. That's about $40 million. Apparently, some people get excited about works of art. Masterpieces by a master artist. That is the immense value we assign to a master artist. But what are we to make then of our salvation? Is not our salvation the work of our God? Is it not the work of God, our master artist? And for a lot of Christians, unfortunately, their salvation is like this Chimabue painting. It's hanging on the wall of their kitchen. It's there. It's something they possess. It's something they know they have, but it's all too often looked over. It's not really something they're excited about. It's become a bit like background music. And so Peter, wanting to avoid this sort of an anomaly in the Christian life, he focuses on the incredible wonder of our salvation. And especially in verses 10 through 12 now, he's going to conclude this preface by showing us that our salvation is something worth being excited about. Notice in verse 13, Peter will summarize all he said to this point by saying, Therefore, prepare your minds for action, keep sober in spirit, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you. That is your salvation at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So everything Peter is going to say in verses 10 through 12 now about the wonder of our salvation, it is for the purpose that we might fix our hope on this salvation, on this grace of our God. Your salvation, he's showing us, is a divine masterpiece. It's worth your excitement. And in this text, Peter will offer us four perspectives on our salvation that prove it's a divine masterpiece worth your excitement. The first perspective he gives us is that of the prophets. The prophets were obsessed with this salvation that has come to us. Verse 10 says, As to this salvation, the prophets, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. Now, who were these prophets. The prophets, generally speaking, were all of those that God had raised up to both record and to speak his words. And Peter qualifies these prophets that he's referencing as those who prophesied of the grace that would come. Now, this qualification distinguishes all true prophets from all false prophets. How is that? Well, true prophets proclaimed God's grace to one degree or another. Their message was simply the grace of God. It all comes down to that, the grace of God that would come. Because salvation in a biblical sense is God's grace. 
It is not by works found in the Old Testament or in the New Testament. But salvation is entirely the work of God. It is the unmerited favor of God toward sinners. Like Peter has made plain even in chapter 1, verse 3, it's the act of God's mercy in which he causes us to be born again. That is the gracious, merciful work of our Creator. And salvation has always been an act of God's grace, even in the Old Testament before Christ came. I think this is important. Because sometimes when we think of the law of Moses, we think of the Old Testament times before Jesus Christ was revealed in his incarnation, we might tend to think that, well, God was giving all these commandments to his people because that was somehow to bring about their salvation. But that could not be farther from the truth. Sinners in that epoch of time could not merit salvation any more than we sinners in our epoch of time can. We are all gone out of God's way and are unprofitable. We are all fallen short of God's glory. And the law of Moses that God gave to man was essentially given to man to show man his need for the saving grace of God and to point man to the redemption that would come in the perfect Lamb of God, which is Jesus Christ. God was using even the Old Testament to point man to the grace that would come in Christ. But notice Peter says... These prophets prophesied of the grace that would come to you. The grace that would come to you on this side of the cross. And then down in verse 12, if you'll look there, he says, it was revealed to them, the prophets, that they were not serving themselves, but you. Peter tells us these prophets were not serving themselves. They were serving Christians. They were serving God's people on this side of the cross. Now, this does not mean that everything the prophets wrote in their own time was without immediate relevance to their immediate situation. But it does indicate that what these prophets wrote in their time was ultimately for our benefit. And this is because these men would never live to see the fulfillment of the things that they were writing about. Now, who here enjoys a good mystery? It's not difficult to get into a good mystery, and there's just something about an awesome mystery that just keeps you hanging. It holds you in suspense. And we all enjoy suspense on one condition, and that is we are kept in suspense. We just need some kind of a resolution at some time. But we don't want to be left hanging. And maybe you watch a show from week to week, and it just keeps you hanging. And it's, you keep watching it because it keeps you in suspense. Well, unfortunately, these prophets were told They knew God would provide a way of eternal salvation, but unfortunately, they never lived themselves to see it. They didn't know how exactly God was going to do it. Here's the greatest mystery ever. How will God deliver this cursed creation? How will he redeem a sinful humanity and provide a way for sinful men to be reconciled to a holy God? How is that going to happen? This is the mystery hid from the ages. And God would raise up prophets, Moses, Isaiah, Jeremiah, different men of God who would give us different pieces of the puzzle. And yet he tells us all these men that God raised up, these prophets, they were raised up for you. They were sent to serve you. They are waiting on you. Amazing. They themselves were left in suspense. But these prophets, nevertheless, had an obsession with the salvation. That's the language 
Peter indicates, they were obsessed with the salvation to come. In verse 10, he says, they made careful searches and inquiries. And the couple verbs he uses here shows that their investigation into this grace that would come was more than just an investigation. It was an obsession. The first verb he uses, exeteo, indicates a searching with effort and with diligence. It's a word often used of those searching for God and those searching the scriptures. And the second verb he uses indicates a careful investigation. It describes a kind of searching in and through something very meticulously, very carefully. Both verbs imply that this searching of the prophets involved an active effort because they were obsessed with what they were seeking to know. And look at verse 11. They were seeking to know what person or time the spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. The prophets were obsessed with seeking to know what person and time this Savior, this Christ who would make good the salvation of God would actually come. And so the prophets want to know, first of all, who will this Christ be? Who's the Savior going to be? Their prophecies reveal to us his lineage from Adam to David. They had some of a lineage that he would come through. Their prophecies reveal his birthplace, that he would be born in Bethlehem, Micah 5.2, that their prophecies also revealed to us the miraculous nature of his birth through the womb of a virgin. And their prophecies revealed many of his divine names and titles. We find that this is no ordinary man and that he would have a forerunner to prepare his coming. Their prophecies revealed how he would appear, in what manner, and also the nature of his ministry and mission on earth, how he would perform miracles and how he would preach a message of hope and peace and deliverance and how he would bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Their prophecies revealed the Savior's offices, how he would be a prophet like unto Moses, a priest after the order of Melchizedek and a king who would reign forever and ever. Who will this remarkable person be? Well, As to exactly who this amazing person would be, they did not know. They did not know. The prophets did not know. Though they searched diligently, they also wanted to know the time. They were obsessed with the time when this Savior would appear. They knew a Savior would come, and we have some prophecies in the Old Testament indicating the time of Messiah's coming, such as even in Genesis 49.10. There's prophecies given as to the timing of Shiloh when the Messiah would appear and and even in Daniel chapter 9 which is even more remarkable this timeline of Messiah's appearance even still the prophets didn't know exactly when Messiah would come and this obsessed them but the prophets went to their grave then longing to know how and when God's saving grace would finally appear and yet Peter's saying this he's saying what remained a mystery to them for centuries has now been revealed to you. He's saying you have the end of the story. God has now made it plain to you in Christ. In other words, these prophets long to see the salvation that you now fully experience and know. And he's saying that is something to be excited about when you consider that your salvation that is now revealed to you in the person and work of Jesus Christ was a mystery hid from the ages. It is now made to you, known to you, Christ in you, the hope of glory, Colossians 1. You will get excited about your salvation. 
you will realize that you live in a very privileged epoch of history. So the first perspective on our salvation that stirs us to excitement is that of the prophets, what they long to know. The prophets were not speaking their own message. Peter says they were, verse 11, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he, that's the Spirit of God, was predicting the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. The prophecies concerning the sufferings of Christ, the glories to follow, this was given to the prophets by the Holy Spirit. He's the one who moved them to these remarkable prophecies. So this brings us to a second perspective on our salvation. The Holy Spirit was orchestrating this salvation. And the Holy Spirit within the prophets was moving them to give these remarkable prophecies. Peter affirms much the same thing about the doctrine of divine inspiration in his second letter. In 2 Peter 1.20, he says, No prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Now notice, the Holy Spirit was predicting, literally testifying beforehand, the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. And Peter uses a plural word to describe these sufferings. It wasn't just the cross. In fact, if you study the Old Testament on the sufferings of Jesus, you will find that there are many remarkable details given, witnessed beforehand. And that happened because the Holy Spirit was doing that through his prophets. From Genesis 3.15 to Zechariah 12.10 or even Zechariah 13.6 and 7, we see different glimpses of the Messiah's sufferings. Peter again uses a plural word to describe Christ's multiple glories following his sufferings. This would include his resurrection, prophecies regarding his ascension, and of course his eternal reign. We could go through multiple places in the Old Testament where the Holy Spirit is doing this. And that's one of my interests in the Old Testament is just to trace prophecies of the coming Messiah. It's exciting. But I hope we understand that only the fact that the Holy Spirit was making these predictions through the prophets can adequately explain how these biblical prophecies could be so accurately fulfilled in the one man, Jesus of Nazareth. A professor has calculated the probability of one man fulfilling the major prophecies made concerning the Messiah. The estimates were worked out by 12 different classes representing some 600 university students. The students carefully weighed all the factors, discussed each prophecy at length, and examined the various circumstances which might indicate that men had conspired together somehow to fulfill a particular prophecy. They made their estimates conservative enough so that there was finally unanimous agreement, even among the most skeptical students, However, the professor then took the estimates and made them even more conservative. He also encouraged other skeptics or scientists to make their own estimates to see if his conclusions were more than fair. Finally, he submitted the figures for review to a committee of the American Scientific Affiliation. Upon examination, they verified that his calculations were dependable and accurate in regard to the scientific material presented. After examining only, get this, only eight different prophecies. They conservatively estimated that the chance of one man fulfilling all eight prophecies was one in 10 to the 17th power. (laughs) Now, you understand that is one with 17 zeros behind it. This is a large 
number. We don't work with this kind of number every day. But to illustrate how large this number is, the professor gave the following illustration. He said, suppose that we take 10 or 1, um, or sorry, 10 to the 17th power silver dollars and lay them on the face of the state of Texas. Texas is large, right? He said, they will cover, these silver dollars will cover the state of Texas all over two feet deep. Now mark one of these silver dollars, throw it into the mist, and mix the whole lot thoroughly. Then blindfold a man, tell him he can travel as far as he wishes, but he must pick up one of those silver dollars, and the probability that that man will select the very silver dollar you marked, that is the probability, that is the chance, the same chance, that the prophets would have had of writing these eight prophecies and having them all come true in any one man from their time to the present. That's remarkable. That's remarkable. Now, there are many other prophecies. Some have estimated less conservatively. There are as many as 300 prophecies or more concerning Jesus. But I hope we understand that the Bible's incredible prediction concerning this single man, Jesus Christ, is only possible because it was the Holy Spirit predicting in them, within them, the sufferings of Christ and the glory that will follow. It's the Holy Spirit who gave us the word concerning God's salvation. And he is the one, he is the God who knows and controls all things. That's how this is possible. That's how this happened. So what's this got to do with being excited over our salvation? Well, Peter's telling his readers, essentially, centuries before you were ever born, even through the, this time of the prophets, as they're predicting the salvation to come, do you realize the Holy Spirit was orchestrating this salvation that would come to you? And he was orchestrating all that was necessary for you to be a recipient of this salvation. Man, when you reflect upon the billions and billions and trillions upon trillions of factors and particularities that were necessary to make your salvation possible and to bring the gospel to you, then you realize you have a salvation worth being excited about. God's plan that Jesus would suffer and be glorified and provide the salvation for us, by the way, it wasn't confined to a moment of history when Jesus was on the cross. It was the plan of God from eternity. This was in the mind of God. Jesus is the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. Jesus could say in Matthew 25, 34, the kingdom has been prepared for you from before the foundation of the world. That is the salvation God has been orchestrating. Salvation, you see, is God's handiwork. It's God's craftsmanship. It is his masterpiece. Something he planned from eternity. You ought to be excited about your salvation because the prophets were obsessed with it. You ought to be excited about your salvation because the Spirit of God was orchestrating it. And we see another reason from another perspective to be excited about our salvation. Peter next adds, and that is the apostles. The apostles were ordained for this salvation. That is, they were ordained to bring this salvation to you. Verse 12. It was revealed to them, that's the prophets, that they were not serving themselves but you in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. The gospel is the message of salvation. It is the message that God 
sent his son into this world to save sinners. And those who preach the gospel to you that Peter's referring to here likely refers to Christ's apostles. Now, it certainly would refer to more than that, but the message of the gospel began, of course, it began with Christ, but it began as far as spreading into the world with the apostles. They were the ones that Jesus directly commissioned to preach his message of salvation. The apostles were those Christ originally sent to preach his gospel. And these men preach the gospel, Peter says, to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Now, the Spirit's being sent from heaven, that should ring a bell, that should remind us of a certain incident in Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit came upon his apostles. It came upon the, the Holy Spirit came upon the early church and he came upon the early church for a particular reason. Not to feel good about themselves, not to just get excited, but to empower them to spread the message of salvation to the uttermost parts of the world so that you could hear that message and believe and be saved. Now, the apostles didn't come up with their own message. That's clear. The Holy Spirit first predicted the gospel through the prophets, yes, but after the prophecies were fulfilled in Jesus Christ, what Peter wants us to understand is God ordained these apostles to preach the fulfillment of that message so that we have here in the Bible a part one and part two. I think we've all noticed that. We have the Old Testament and we have the New Testament. But please understand, the two parts communicate one central, coherent message regarding the same salvation of God by grace. And that is only possible, all what the prophets were predicting in the Old Testament could be identical or same, it could be harmonious with the message that the New Testament apostles were now proclaiming, that is only possible by this fact that the Bible shares one author. It's the same Spirit of God inspiring now Christ's apostles to some of the very same Christians that Peter is now writing to. Paul would previously write in Galatians chapter 1 and verse 11, I would have you to know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. It's not my message, he says. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Paul saying, I got this word all the way from the top. God gave it to me directly. He was an apostle of Christ. And because these men received directly the revelation of Christ, no wonder they could say with Paul in 1 Corinthians 2 2, that I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Why were these apostles so driven to go to their deaths for this message? For the sake of people they didn't even know, believing and following it. Well, they were driven because they were directly commissioned by the living Christ. And they would want you to know that. What the apostles preached, they preached by the Holy Spirit, sent from heaven. The apostles would give their lives to this end, that this gospel might be, as Peter says, announced to you. And so think about that. God raised up men. Of course, he would start with the apostles, but he would raise up hundreds and thousands. And even in our time, by our time now, millions. Millions of millions of men and women, and yes, even children, God has used through history to spread the knowledge of the grace of our salvation. This incredible salvation in Jesus Christ. 
Many gave their lives. Many suffered to this end. But Peter's saying, God made it so that these announced the gospel to you. So you should count yourself blessed. You should consider yourself blessed. You should be excited about your salvation because the prophets were excited about it. They were obsessed with this message. The Spirit of God orchestrated this message of salvation because the apostles were ordained for the proclamation of this message. And as if all this wasn't enough to evoke wonder in our salvation, what does Peter do? Well, he adds one more perspective. That is another reason to be excited about our salvation. And that is the angels. The angels are amazed at the salvation. This salvation that has come to us. In verse 12, he says, These things which have now been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, these things are things into which angels long to look. Now this is fascinating because generally speaking, angels are the marvel of human beings. Angels somehow hold the fascination of human beings, both regenerate and unregenerate humans. And we marvel at what these creatures are and and how superior they are to us in many respects, and yet we can't examine them with the naked eye. They are in another dimension, as it were. Angels are spirits, you see. They are created beings, and so they are not omnipresent. They're not omniscient like God. And yet we find as we examine the scriptures, that they are extremely fast. God actually allowed the prophet Ezekiel to see angels. In Ezekiel 1.14, Ezekiel describes these angels moving to and fro like bolts of lightning. That's pretty uh, spectacular. Angels in scripture we see are also extremely powerful. Second Chronicles 32.21 mentions how one angel destroys an entire Assyrian army. Amazing. The angels that we read about in Scripture are extremely beautiful and glorious. They're full of splendor and light. The angels which appeared at Christ's empty tomb had a countenance like lightning, we're told, and clothing like white as snow, Matthew 28, 3. In fact, angels are so awesome in their appearance that wherever we read about them being manifest to saints or to people on earth in their glory... People are afraid for their lives. People fall down to worship them. They are so godlike in their appearance. They're anything like we know because these holy angels are so brilliant in their splendor and beauty. In Revelation 22, we read how the Apostle John, actually this is the second time he does this, he falls on his face before this angel that's appeared to him in his vision, and he's going to worship this angel. And the angel says, get up, what are you doing? He says, I'm a servant, a fellow servant of the same God. Worship God, don't worship angels. No, don't worship angels. But angels are pretty spectacular, aren't they? And yet as amazing as angels are, and, and though they are the marvel of men, Peter is telling us, Our salvation is the marvel of angels. Angels aren't excited about themselves. They're excited about our salvation. We are impressed with angels. Peter wants us to realize that angels are impressed with us, particularly your salvation. That is what they want to understand. He says God's salvation of his people are things into which angels long to look. uses a couple words here. 
The first, this word for longing, epithumeo, is this word for a very strong desire. And the second word, paracupto, which he uses, it describes how these angels are looking intently. They are stretching the neck, as it were, to examine carefully what it is they're looking at. In fact, to give you an idea of how this word is used in the Bible, the word paracupto is the same word that gospel writers would use of the first eyewitnesses of Jesus' empty tomb. Imagine Peter. Peter, the same guy writing this to us. He came to that open sepulcher and he looked in and he saw this empty slab and the collected grave clothes there and he's trying to piece this together and examine what's happening here. And that act of intently looking into the open sepulcher of Christ, that's this idea. The angels are stretching out their necks, as it were, stooping down to examine you because they want to understand how it is that God could save you. How it is that God could be so gracious to you. Did you know the angels are aware of every time you disobey the Lord? Yeah. Angels see it all. Uh, Now, God knows, right? And that's ultimately who we're trying to please. And yet... The angels see how far, how far we have fallen from God's grace, how undeserving and wretched we are in our sin, and no one knows better than the angels then. We don't deserve this grace, and yet God is willing to grace sinners with eternal salvation. Angels are amazed at this. In fact, they are so excited about the salvation that we have to ask ourselves, why is that? How is it that angels are so impressed? Well, they are impressed because as far as we know, angels have never experienced God's forgiveness and saving grace. Not like we have. The angels that Peter is referring to in verse 12 are the holy angels. That is those who never fell with Lucifer in his rebellion. And though scripture does call these angels elect angels in 1 Timothy 5.21, they are angels chosen by God. God has preserved them in holiness. Yet none of these angels were redeemed out of sin. They were never forgiven from sin. They they have never themselves experienced salvation by grace. And so when they look at us, when they look at you and me, they see something extraordinary. They see the grace of God manifest in a way that is nowhere else manifest in all creation. And the Bible gives us a few glimpses of this amazement angels have at our salvation first we see the angels singing with excitement at christ's birth you know they understood when jesus was born in bethlehem they understood this is an incredible act of grace that the savior is born for the salvation of sinners and so they're singing glory to god in the highest they're excited next we discover angels rejoice in the event of one sinner one sinner who repents and is saved. Jesus would say in Luke 15, 10, and that I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. That is to say, the angels were excited about your salvation. They're excited about your salvation. That's neat. Thirdly, we learn from Scripture that the angels are appointed by God to serve his redeemed people. Hebrews 1.14 tells us the angels are all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation. God is sovereign over all things, yes, but God has chosen 
to mediate his sovereignty in this creation through the mediation of angels. Amazing. And angels are sent to serve us. Jesus would say in Matthew 18.10, See that you don't despise one of these little ones. He's talking about little children. For I say to you that their angels in heaven continually see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Imagine that. (laughs) This is uh, neat to think that God is using angels to protect in some way help little children and even his people. What an awesome thought. Now, we don't pray to angels. We don't put our trust in angels. We put our trust in God because God is the source of all of this protection and care. But I hope we understand from Scripture that the angels of God are servants sent to help us. And they're excited about that. They love to do the will of God. And so we've got prophets, apostles, and now angels sent to serve us in this life, in this salvation we experience. How amazing. Fourthly, the Bible indicates the angels of God will gather his redeemed to escort them to glory. In Matthew 24, 31, Jesus said, He will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. Now, don't worry. If you're one of God's elect, if you're one of his people, they won't miss you. (laughs) The angels won't forget you. God's not going to leave anyone behind. And the angels are excited about this. They're excited about our salvation because they share the heart of God who loves his people and, and just desires to dwell with them for all of eternity. So just imagine, the angels are excited about waiting for that trumpet. They are excited because they know when that trumpet sounds, that is the signal for them to go and to gather you, his people, and to gather God's people together who will forever be with the Lord. That's amazing. The angels are excited. Finally, we know the angels are excited over our salvation because we catch a glimpse of what they're singing about at the throne of God. Notice what the angels sing before the Lamb of glory who is Christ. In Revelation 5, when the Lamb of God takes the scroll from the Father, the angels of heaven sing a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And you, that is the Lamb of God, you have made them to be a kingdom and priest to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. These marvelous creatures that words fail to describe, these incredible beings cease not to sing of God's salvation of sinners from every tongue and people and tribe and nation. Wherever, whoever, however, all, of course, through the the grace of Jesus Christ, the angels are excited over it. And they don't lose that wonder. They are singing of how God could show mercy and grace to humans dead in sin, give us new life and hope and purpose and make us to be a kingdom of priests to God. And and hey, get this. Restore us to what God originally intended for man in the Garden of Eden, that we would reign upon the earth and over the earth. Isn't that beautiful? These are words so glorious. I cannot possibly stir your imagination to grasp them, but I would ask you to do your best to just try to imagine heaven opening and, and you know, the, the music and the cheering and the excitement of the angels when God's elect are reunited with their God. 
and will forever be with him throughout eternity. That is exciting. And the angels can't wait. Peter's point is obvious. If the angels of heaven stretch their necks to look deeper into this salvation, and they can't quite grasp it, they can't quite understand its glory, how much more ought you, who are the direct recipients of this grace that would come, how much more ought you to be excited, filled with wonder? The angels are excited. Are you excited? Or has your salvation become a background music? Is it kind of like that masterpiece hanging on a kitchen wall? You know it's there, but you've sort of forgotten about it. Your salvation is a divine masterpiece. It's worth your excitement. There's a story in Luke 10, Luke chapter 10, that sums this all up, I believe. Luke 10 and verse 17, we read that the 70... That is, 70 disciples Jesus has directly commissioned to preach the gospel. They returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I was watching Satan fall from heaven. Jesus has said, I've seen it all. Like lightning. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing will injure you. Jesus is saying, I told you what would happen. Don't be surprised, right? I gave you this authority. But then he says this, verse 20. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. Look, Jesus is excited about this salvation. And Jesus wants his disciples to realize how blessed they really are, that their names are recorded in heaven. And so in verse 23, he turns to his disciples and he says to them privately, blessed are the eyes which see the things you see, for I say to you, that many prophets and kings wished to see the things you see. They didn't see the Messiah. They didn't see God's salvation revealed in Christ. And he says, and they did not see them. And they desired to hear the things which you hear, and they did not hear them. Jesus says, you're rejoicing in miracles? Well, sure, that's exciting, but no, rejoice in this. You want a miracle to be excited about? You rejoice in the miraculous nature of your salvation. That's a miracle. That's the masterpiece of God that is worth rejoicing for all of eternity. And certainly, that should begin now. You've been saved by God's grace. The prophets were obsessed with this salvation that would come to you. The Spirit of God was sovereignly orchestrating from eternity this salvation that would come to you. We have these apostles and all those who followed in their legacy who were divinely ordained for preaching this salvation that would come to you and even the angels are forever amazed at this salvation that has come to you. Are you amazed? Truly, we are blessed beyond measure. So let's just ask, what gets you excited? What gets you excited? Is it baseball? Is it a barbecue? Good food, right? Good music? Vacations? Come on. What about the fact church is almost over? There are different things that excite us very naturally, what about our salvation? To be saved in the true biblical sense is to be rescued from the penalty and power of your sin and to be adopted into the family of God eternally, but not on the basis of our works. Not because of who we are, but on the basis of the mercy and grace in Jesus Christ. Boy, is that something to be excited about? <laughs> Praise the Lord. That is exciting. Let's think of that the next time we sing. 
And that will even change our worship. Now, maybe you're here and you're honestly not all that excited about your salvation. This could be because uh, maybe you've got some things in your life that displease the Lord and you know it. And so you know that you're not living out this salvation. You're not living the faith you profess. You know what? That will quench the joy of your salvation. And if that's you, you need to repent of that. And like David in Psalm 51 say, Oh Lord, restore to me the joy of my salvation. Bring me back to that first love. That's a great prayer. But maybe you're here and and you're not really excited because you'd say, I'm not really certain I have this salvation. Well, that's another reason people aren't really excited. Hey, there's hope in the Bible. 1 John 5, 13, God has written us the scriptures that we may know we have eternal life. If that's you, don't don't feel that you have to just wonder for the rest of your life whether or not you're going to make it. God is wanting to extend to you the joy of salvation, not just salvation, but the joy that comes with it. It certainly is possible someone here is not really excited about the salvation because you don't have this salvation. You've never truly been forgiven. Maybe your salvation is entirely a matter of what you do, what you bring to the table. That's not biblical salvation. That's not the grace that would come in Jesus Christ. This salvation is a salvation that God wants you to experience. And if you have any questions, if you need any guidance along these lines, you say, hey, I just don't have that excitement. There could be a variety of reasons, but I would encourage you not to be shy, not to be proud, not to be embarrassed or whatever. Hey, there's nothing worth forfeiting this eternal, incredible joy. Don't neglect the joy that is available in Jesus Christ. So if that's you, please see me. Please see uh, Brother Kevin, someone who can open a Bible and give you some guidance and lead you to know this incredible joy available in Jesus. Let's pray.